0: Well, this morning uh, we are into week two of a new series, and let me just throw out that we will get back to our series in the Gospel of John in about another three weeks or so. But we, we wanted to take a, a break from John and come into this series that we've called Light at the End of the Tunnel because we're stepping into that light, we're meeting in person, and so we've, we've taken a break from John. We'll get back to John chapter 12 in about the middle of July. But We've called this series The Light at the End of the Tunnel because since last March, it has felt like, maybe just for me, but maybe for you too, one long tunnel. And it seems like from all sorts of different directions, we've had kind of darkness coming at us. But now there's, there seems to be light at the end of the tunnel. Here in Alberta, our restrictions are, are set to be removed in just a few days, and it seems like we're coming to an end. But the question we want to wrestle with through these five weeks, looking at five biblical truths to putting this COVID season behind us, is is exactly that. What is it going to take to put COVID, put this season of the last, again, 15 or 16 months, truly behind us? What's it going to really take for us to step out into the light? Especially because, as we said last week, the last 15 months or so have been about more than just a pandemic. It's been about more than just a virus, which means we're going to need more than just vaccinations and an easing of restrictions to get back to normal, whatever normal looks like. Last week, we talked about the need to stop social distancing, and we said that phrase, stop social distancing, had nothing to do with giving people space and staying two meters away from one another. But when we said stop social distancing, we said what we need to, to work on and aim for and, and have grace pour in and through us so much is that we need healing in the relationships that have taken so many hits over the last 15 months. I think it's just been uh, increased. COVID has just put so much more stress and anxiety on our relationships and, and things that maybe wouldn't affect us as much have really just blown up and it's cost us friendships, maybe even within families. We want to extend grace to one another. Today we're going to look at the second biblical key to putting the past 15 months behind us. And in the next couple of days or couple of weeks, we've been told that we can take off our masks. And so that's our second biblical key. Take off our masks. Once again, this is about more than just a piece of cloth. It's about the things that we may have been hiding for the past 15 months or more. We're talking about the mask that's hiding what's going on in our relationships, in our marriages, with our kids, the masks that are hiding our emotions, the hurt and pain that's inside us, the the stress and anxiety inside of us, the mask we're wearing when we come into a room like this and say, how are you doing? And say, I'm great, really just doing fantastic. Some of us are are keeping these masks on so that we actually don't have to deal with the stuff that we know is inside, that we've uh, purposefully and forcefully shoved way down deep, hopefully to never deal with again. These things, of course, have only been amplified in the last year and a half. Some of us wear masks because we're keeping things in secret. We're living in secret. Some of us have them on because we're dealing with guilt and shame and we just don't want to have to wrestle with that out in public. Some of us are are, are wearing masks because we believe the lie that if people saw me for who I really was, if, if you really knew what was going on in my heart, if you really knew who I was, you would reject me and leave me. And finally, some of us keep wearing our masks because we really believe it hides and covers up whatever we've done or whoever we have become. But the one thing that is common to all mask wearing, it doesn't actually address the thing behind the thing. It doesn't actually do anything about what you're trying to hide, what, uh, what you've got going on behind the mask. See, masks aren't solutions, they don't make things go away, and boy do I need to regularly remind myself of that. And so let's get right after the issue what's behind your mask? Is it an addiction or a growing compulsion? Is it trouble in relationships in your marriage? Is it conflicts at home? Is it anxiety or stress or depression? Is it frequenting websites you know you shouldn't be on? Is it financial stress? Well, let's look at the Bible together and have a look at one of the biggest mask-wearing attempts ever. It's probably a story you're familiar with, but it's a a story about a man who made a series of choices that that kept stacking up on top of one another from a place of vulnerability. And largely, this was a result of him working from home instead of going into the office. Sound familiar at all? Let me start reading for us. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. And I'll start reading from chapter 11, uh, starting at verse 1. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now, late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath he sent someone to find out who she was. Let's stop there for just a minute. The chapter opens saying, when kings normally go off to war, for us that means that David shouldn't have been at home. He should have been doing the exact same thing. He should have been out with his army, defending his nation, uh, leading his troops, fighting for the causes of his people, but instead he stayed home. Now, this time in history is a, a long way removed from us, thousands of years. So, as a bit of background, uh, kings dealt with issues related to their uh, kingdoms and the mission of their kingdoms in the spring because, well, sort of similar to here, the winters, they just don't foster moving people around and stuff. Things were hard. It was hard to move troops and armies and supplies and such in the winter. But when the weather softened and the spring came, that's when you could travel. That's when you could put the work in, and that's when you could act. Now at this point in Israel's history, David had been king for about 10 years already. This was a time in the history of the nation where they had achieved prosperity and accomplishment, and things were going really well for David. But instead of him going forward... Instead of him continuing to to build the nation, to keep leading his people, David started to coast a little bit. He started to to take it easy. He started to to follow uh, the news on Twitter and read his uh, newspapers and saw he was getting pretty good press and started to just sort of rely and rest on his reputation. Now, we don't know totally what was going through David's head when he decided to stay home, but for whatever reason, he thought, you know what? This spring, the boys are going to handle it by themselves. I'm just going to, to let them go, I'm going to just kind of sit on the sidelines. Which means David wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. He wasn't taking care of the things that he needed to be taking care of. Now, unlike many of us in this season, David wasn't forced to work from home. This was his call, but ultimately it doesn't matter. There's some similarities in the context here. For David, it meant that all the energy and effort and time and consideration that was supposed to go to leading his people, leading his troops, leading the armies, was free to go in other directions, to drift other places and be spent in other ways. For David as well, there would be little accountability in how he spent his time. All the soldiers were gone. All the officers were gone. The most important people around him, they were all off at war. Where David was supposed to have been. There wasn't really anyone around to know what he was doing. There was no one around asking, hey, where's David? Why isn't he here? Why isn't he in this meeting? Why isn't he at this gathering? Why isn't he leading this thing? That David just stayed home. He isolated himself. So instead of his time and energy being disciplined and challenged and accounted for and busy and engaged, he was in a situation where he had too much time on his hands, where he was undisciplined. His energy was unchallenged, unaccounted for, not busy and not engaged. And that's when things got ugly. And this is one of the ugliest stories recorded for us in the Bible. And there are a few of them. The person that David sent to find out who this woman was came back and told him that, that this was Bathsheba. She was married, uh, and her husband's name was Uriah, who happened to be one of David's mighty men. He was off uh, commanding the army where David should have been. But David sent for her anyways. He brought her to the palace. He flexed all the muscles he could flex as the king of Israel. Wined her, dined her, a, whatever He did. And they slept together, and she got pregnant. David knew he was in trouble, so the mask came up. The cover-up efforts started. First, he sent word to the army, to the commander, to say, send Uriah home. Give him a leave. David assumed that he'd come home. He'd he'd stay in his house with his wife, and then uh, the eventual baby would be seen as Uriah's. Done. But in these verses, as we see the Horrible decision-making of David. We see Uriah stand out as a man of honor. When he comes home, he realizes that I'm the only one that's been given leave. Something's not quite right here. And so he was so honorable that he wouldn't actually go to his home, but instead he stayed with the palace servants in solidarity with his soldiers who were out sleeping in the fields. He said, why should I be comfortable when those I'm fighting shoulder to shoulder with are in the fields? David saw his first plan wasn't going to work, so he took it a step further. He invited Uriah to dinner and and fed him and got him drunk, thinking, okay, now Uriah is going to go home and it'll be okay. But he didn't go home. So then, eventually, David sent him back to the army and arranged for Uriah to be stationed at the front lines where the fighting was fiercest so that his death would be certain, arranged for the men's. This is how it was worded, 2 Samuel 11, verse 15. This is David's command. Put Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest and then pull back so that he will be killed. Happened. Finally, David figured he was in the clear. He'd, he'd covered his tracks. and Then he married Bathsheba. That's quite the mask. That's quite the Fifteen months of working from home or whatever, right? So what happens next? It's important that, that, that we as Bible readers come to the text and realize that just because something's in the Bible doesn't mean that it's recommending us to do the same thing. The Bible is often descriptive, not prescriptive. So this is not a passage of a good example. Let's make that really clear. God is not pleased with this at all. And so at the beginning of the next chapter, chapter 12, he sends a prophet, uh, Nathan, to tell David a story, to tell David a parable. that would actually get right through to David and would deal with his emotions, it would deal with his sin, it would deal with his mask. Now, maybe you remember, David grew up a shepherd, so he was familiar with the, the stories of, of sheep and what it meant to be a shepherd, and all these things. This was his history, so it, it, all these, these things resonated with him in his heart. So Nathan, Nathan told him a story about a shepherd. Let me read that for us from chapter 12. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David to tell this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. Now, the rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. And the poor man owned nothing but one little lamb that he had bought. And he raised that little lamb, and it grew up with his children. And the little lamb ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. So what happened to David's mask? God actually stepped in and took it off. God made David see that His life and his actions and his choices and his breakdown that happened here. And what happened next? What happened after God steps in? Well, the Bible tells us, down in verse 13, that David confessed to Nathan, excuse me, "I have sinned against the Lord." David was broken confessed his sin and then he owned it. Now, I don't know what kind of mask or masks you're wearing, but it's time to take them off. This morning, we're going to look at, at four masks that often we wear. Maybe uh, every one of us, I suspect, every one of us will identify with at least one, maybe more. The first mask that, that many of us are wearing and, and often wear is one that hides our emotional distress it hides our anxiety. It hides the depression. It, it, it try, we try to use it to cover up our mental health, make it look like everything's fine. And the reason we wear this mask is because so often, tragically, people view uh, their own anxiety or anxiety and depression in others as weakness, something that, that shouldn't be tolerated or something that I shouldn't allow in my life. So i'm going to keep that a secret i'm not going to let you know these things that i'm wrestling with in my heart because you're going to then look at me as being weak i think as a culture we've made some progress in this in the last little while and i think in the church i hope we have as well and i hope we continue to because we need to take that mask off we need to be able to talk about our mental health. We need to have people who are close enough to us to check in and say, no, how are you really doing? I know you're going to say fine when I ask you, but let's, let's forget fine. How are we really doing? We need to be able to help and carry one another through these things, maybe especially after the year we've been through. The anxiety and depression, they're, they're nothing to be ashamed of. It's not, a, it's not a spiritual fail that you're wrestling with these things. It's certainly not some kind of sin. So if you need help, reach out. There are lots of resources available to us in the town, in, in the Bow Valley, in our province, and within the church as well. It's okay to be anxious. It's okay to be depressed. It's okay to ask for help. But let me suggest what's not okay in all of this Keep it to yourself. Keep hiding behind. first mask is the one we use to hide our emotional distress. The second thing that is behind a lot of masks and, and we've seen ramp up, especially in the last 15 months, is addictions. There's lots of kind of addictions and all sorts of levels of dependency and, and kind of gray area relationships with things. Ah, you know, I could quit that anytime if I wanted to. It's okay. But what we're talking about are those things that are that are life-controlling, life-destroying, all-consuming addiction. Could be pills, could be pornography, could be gambling, could be alcohol, could be food, could be games, could be social media. The list goes on and on. These are things that we have an unhealthy relationship with. The, The classic definition of addiction is it's the compulsive engagement in something despite adverse consequences say that again it's a compulsive engagement in something despite the adverse consequences we know this isn't good for us i know it's not good for me but that's all right and it's amazing the degree some keep this behind their masks Brendan Manning, uh, in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, tells a story of when, when he was a patient at a, uh, an alcoholic rehab center in a small town north of Minneapolis. And so he was there with 25 other chemically dependent men, and they were assembled in a large room. And the leader of the group and the leader of the session was a trained counselor, a skilled therapist, and a senior member of the staff at the center. And the men had all signed away their privacy They'd signed a way that they, they swore that they would tell the truth and signed affidavits that they would open up their life with permission and give the staff to, to research and poke and prod into their lives to get at the bottom of whatever their addiction was. The leader's name was Sean Murphy O'Connor. And Brandon writes that, that Sean directed a patient to Mac, a patient named Max, to sit on the hot seat this day in the center of the group. Now, Max uh, said he was a Christian, he was a nominal Christian, he was married, he had five kids, he was a president of his own company, and he was quite wealthy. And so the first question O'Connor asked him, listen, I want to get into your history. How much have you been drinking per day? Max says, well, I I have two Bloody Marys before lunch, two martinis after the office closes at five, a couple of martinis at dinner, and a couple more drinks before bed. Okay, so eight, eight a day, Max? Absolutely right. He says, no more, no less. That's it. Someone else in the group kind of then chimed in and said, listen, have you ever hidden a bottle somewhere in the house? Max said, oh, don't be ridiculous. I don't have to hide anything. It's all out in the open. Hey, Max, how many bottles? Max replies, well, I don't really know. I don't have the official count. Uh, offhand, I'd say, I yeah, know I've got a couple cases of vodka here. I've got a, a case of Beefeater gin there. I've got a couple bottles of bourbon and scotch and a few other liquors. They were around. The interrogation went for another 20 minutes. And Brendan reports that that Max fudged and hedged. He minimized and rationalized and justified his drinking patterns. Finally, trapped by relentless cross-examination, he admitted that he secretly kept a bottle of vodka in the nightstand, a bottle of gin in his suitcase for travel purposes, another in the bathroom cabinet for medicinal purposes, and three more at the office for drinks throughout the day. Ben O'Connor, the leader of the session, said, OK, get me a phone. The telephone was brought in. He dialed a number in Max's hometown. He put it on speaker so everyone in the group could hear. The person answered, O'Connor said, hey, is, is, is this Hank Shea? Said, yes. Who's this? Well, my name's Sean Murphy O'Connor. I'm a counselor at an alcohol and drug rehab center in the Midwest. Do you remember a customer named Max? But with, with his family's permission, I'm researching his drinking history. Now you." tend tend a bar in that tavern every afternoon, so I'm wondering if you could tell me approximately how much Max drinks every day. Well, he drops a wad in here every afternoon. Max has his standard six martinis. Max jumped up and started swearing at everyone in the room. He'd said, two, right? They hung up the phone. Another person asked Max, asked Max, have you ever been unkind to your children? We started to boast. No, I'm just a great dad. I'm just the best dad. I'm, the, I'm a great dad. He was cut off and asked again, "Have you ever been unkind?" I said, "Well, I was a little thoughtless with my nine-year-old daughter last Christmas Eve. I don't don't really remember what happened, but I just get this heavy feeling every time I think about it." And O'Connor dialed another number, and it was. Said, "This is Don Murphy O'Connor calling, ma'am. We're just in the middle of a group therapy session." Your husband has just told us that he was thoughtless to your daughter last Christmas Eve. Can you can you help me and and give me some details of what happened? Soft voice filled the room. She's on the phone, remember. Said, yes, I can tell you the whole thing. Our daughter Debbie wanted a pair of shoes for her Christmas present. On the afternoon of December twenty-fourth, my husband drove her downtown, gave her a bunch of money, and told her to buy the best shoes in the store. So she did. When she climbed back in the car, she kissed him on the cheek and told him he was the best daddy in the whole world. Max decided to celebrate. Stopped at the cork and bottle, it's a bar a few miles from her house, and told Debbie he'd be right out. It was a clear and extremely cold day, about 12 degrees above zero Fahrenheit, so that's chilly. So Max left the motor running and and locked both doors from the outside so no one could get in. A little after 2 o'clock in the afternoon, then his wife grew quiet. In the room, could hear her crying on the other phone. She went on. Husband lost track of time and purpose and everything out, and he came out of the bar at midnight. The motor stopped running, car windows were frozen shut. Debbie was badly frostbitten on both ears and. When he got her to the hospital, the doctors had to, os- had to operate. Amputated a thumb and forefinger on her right hand, and she will be deaf the right that Max fell on the floor and began to sob hysterically. Then O'Connor got up, turned to the rest of the men in the room, and said, "Okay." Twenty-four recovering alcoholics and addicts climbed the stairs out of that room, leaving Max on the floor, sobbing, turning to shriek. After that event, Max went through the most striking personality change. He got honest, became more open and sincere, and valuable than any man in that group. The night before Max completed treatment to move on to the next step, one of the men in treatment passed by his room. Max had been crying. He looked up, wiped the tears away, and said, I just prayed the first time. The mask had that's a, that's a long quote. That's a long story. And chances are that's beyond where many of us are wrestling with the things in our lives. But let's not think that could never happen we need to take the masks off. Things that are getting a hold of our lives, unnecessary, uncontrolled holds, we need to do. The third thing that we hide behind a lot of masks is crisis mode living. And what we mean by that is during, during the last 15 months or more, you've been hit by, again, one or more personal crisis. And you've been dealing with it, but you've been dealing with it alone. Maybe it's something with with a family member. Maybe it's been a a financial setback or unemployment. Maybe it's a medical issue. Maybe it's been COVID itself or cancer or miscarriage or, or whatever else. Maybe it's a marital crisis and you just don't know what to do with it. This has been a season where those things just seem to get piled one on top of another. That mask needs to come off, that that crisis mode living needs to come off. And what I mean by that is you need to let people in. You need to be served. You've got to be loved, and you've got to be known. You need community. We need people around us. You need friends, and you need a family. We need to be able to take off our mask and say, listen, my name is Sean. I've got this going on in my life, and frankly, I'm scared to death. I don't know what to do. I just need you to ask me about it from time to time. I just need you to to carry me through this. I need you to, whatever, I need your help. You know what the church is supposed to be as as a family of faith, among other things? It's supposed to be the place where we can take off all these masks and be together and struggle together, to weep together together. And rejoice together to be brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers to each other to be family to be the the family that maybe we don't have in the bloodline. And when this happens, when the door opens, because we've got to we've got to do our part, right? We've got to take that mask off and let people in. But when we do that, the door to to giving and receiving love and support. Turns us into, it gives us the ability to become all that God has for us. We share in each other's burdens and when we do so, we make them lighter as we shoulder them together. But first, we need to let people know what's behind the mask. There's a story that, that Robert Fulham once told bringing up the game of hide-and-go-seek. Does anyone play hide-and-go-seek? I'm going to look at this section of the room a little more. Hide-and-go-seek, a little bit. Lots of us played that game with, with our kids or as kids. There's only one problem with the game, and you probably all know what it is. Sometimes someone hides too well, and it's, it just doesn't end great, right? Nobody knows where to find him. The laundry basket over your head in your daughter's closet is, you know, that's a great spot, but it, it ends the game in a way you don't want it to. Sooner or later, that person that hid too well shows up and was like, hey, why would you stop looking for me? Everyone would get mad at them because you hid too well. This isn't supposed to be a game of hide, I don't know. You're supposed to be able to be found, right? Well, Robert Fulham then writes of a man who discovered that he had terminal cancer. He was, he was a doctor himself, and he didn't want to make his friends and family suffer with him through the illness. So he kept it a secret, and eventually died. And lots of people around him were saying, oh, he was so brave, He just stepped up and he took it and he protected his family, protected his friends from going through this with him. Everyone said that except his friends. Except his friends. They were upset. They were angry. They were crushed that he didn't feel as if they needed to be a part of him. That he didn't trust their strength to carry him through this too. And it hurt them beyond words that they didn't even get a chance to say goodbye. This man hid too well. See, here's the thing. Lots of us have, have areas of crisis mode living in our lives that have been, again, amplified or, or started in the last 15 months. We need to take that mask off. And let, for those in the room, those tuning in online as well, let me just suggest that, that coming here coming to a church building, logging into church is kind of the first step in reaching out. It is admitting that I can't do this on my own. I need people around me to come on in. Join us. Wherever you are, whatever you're dealing with, hide and seek is over. It's time to be found. One more thing. We're really good at hiding behind our masks. The last thing is our sin. Listen, you and I, we're all like David, when we realize we've got something going on. Maybe it's not just uh, our emotional distress or depression. Maybe it's not addiction that we're hiding. Maybe it's not crisis. In some ways, those things are maybe a bit easier. But for some of us, it's the card-carrying, freely chosen, purposefully embraced sin. And that's the last thing we want to take off our mask. But let me tell you something as your pastor we need to deal with it if there's if there's one thing that david did right in the verses we read is that when the mask came off he didn't lie he didn't make excuses he didn't resist or defend or deflect or, or or run away but he fell to his knees and he owned it and we can do that too this is actually what it means to be a follower of jesus to own your sin And once we've owned it, we ask God to forgive us on the basis of what Jesus did for us on the cross. This is the beautiful thing of the gospel, that Jesus went to the cross to pay for our sin, for your sin, for my sin. The Bible tells us in in Romans that the wages of sin, the cost, the penalty of sin is death. And that makes a lot of people say, well, what kind of a God is that? What kind of a, of a, a transcendent being would, would require that from someone who's just broken a little rule? Well, the answer is Holy One. Holy God. A just God. A righteous God. One who cannot react and respond to sin in any other way and still be God. But you know what else that God is? That God is a God who loves. And that God is a God who loves unconditionally. And when justice meets that kind of love, you drive a nail in your own hand. You, you step in and you take the penalty yourself. You pay the price yourself. As Frederick Buckner once put it, like a father saying about his sick child, I would do anything to make you well, God finally calls his own bluff and does it. Did anything to make you well. Remember this Jesus died on the cross so that we would be free to take off masks. And remember that, that as we do, we'll be met with God's love and God's forgiveness and all the second chances we need. Praise the Lord. It doesn't matter what's behind the mask, it's just one prayer. Away. Maybe you want to pray this with me today. Dear Jesus, I know that I need your forgiveness. I believe that you came to earth and died for me and rose again, and now I can have new life. I want to ask you to come into my heart and my life, and I want to trust you as my forgiver and follow you as my leader. Listen, when we pray a prayer like that, here's what we're saying to God. I'm I'm owning this. I'm owning my sin. And I'm asking for your forgiveness. And I'm owning and believing that that you are the only one that can forgive. There's no one else that I can turn to for forgiveness. Because ultimately it is against you, God, that I've sinned. We're saying, Jesus, you are God himself in human form. That you came to earth to die for me and, and rise again to offer me a new life too. So here I am. Lord, I need you. I want you. Come into every nook and cranny of my word and permeate every fiber of my being, every heart, every fiber of my heart and life. I will freely, willingly, and gladly give you the steering wheel. I'm I'm tired of doing this on my own. This prayer isn't just about forgiveness, it's about letting God lead. And that prayer, when we pray it sincerely, It isn't just about taking off the mask, but it's about getting an entirely new face. And that's what being a follower of Jesus is about. It's not about saying, I've got it all together, look at me. But instead, it's saying, actually, I'm a mess, and I need Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this time that we have together. And thank you for this challenge. I pray that as we go through these five weeks, as we consider last week uh, how we are, uh, we need to add grace to our relationships and and stop pushing people away over issues that may turn out to just be trivial. As you think about the masks that we're wearing, what needs to come down and how we need to, to let people into our lives and ultimately let you into our lives, heal us, to forgive us, to make us new, draw us to you. I pray that, that we wouldn't just go and log off in a couple minutes or, or, or head out of the parking lot in a few minutes and, and kind of forget what you've maybe been stirring up in our lives, but I pray that you would speak to us, that you continue to challenge and convict us, that you would draw us to what you've got for us that you would heal, heal the areas of brokenness in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' good, good name. Amen.